You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before Yahweh and died. And Yahweh said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before Yahweh, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before Yahweh, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house." and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before Yahweh, and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, 
and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, and put on his garments, and come out and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before Yahweh from all your sins." It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for you forever, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 606 of this podcast. That was Leviticus 16, the whole chapter talking about the Day of Atonement, talking about the scapegoat. You've heard the term or the concept before, I'm sure, of scapegoating. This is where it comes from. You have a goat here in Leviticus 16, prescribed as the one who is going to carry the sins of the people once a year, the sins of the people outside the camp. And this goat, poor goat, is going to some 
person or some being or some entity or someone named Azazel. Who is this Azazel? (laughs) What is the business with Azazel? It's very curious. It's very, very curious. According to JewishEncyclopedia.com and an entry by Morris Jastrow, Frederick McCurdy, Kaufman Kohler, Marcus Jastrow, Isaac Husik, Azazel is the name of a supernatural being mentioned in connection with the ritual of the Day of Atonement. After Satan, for whom he was in some degree a preparation, Azazel enjoys the distinction of being the most mysterious extra-human character in sacred literature. Unlike other Hebrew proper names, the name itself is obscure. And this is the only place Azazel shows up. He shows up here in Leviticus 16. There's a mention of him, and that's it. That's all you need to know. That's all God tells us for the purposes of this passage. Now, that's biblically speaking, but rabbis interpreting Azazel as Azaz, rugged, and El, strong, refer it to the rugged and rough mountain cliff from which the goat was cast down. And most medieval commentators uh, seem to agree with that. Most modern scholars, after having for some time endorsed the old view, have accepted the opinion mysteriously hinted at by Ibn Isra and expressly stated by Namanides that Azazel belongs to the class of Serim, goat-like demons or jinn, haunting the desert to which the Israelites were wont to offer sacrifice. Compare the rose and the hinds. Also think here, fawns, Roman mythology has these creatures called fawns. C.S. Lewis gives us a character, at least one, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, who is a fawn, Mr. Tumnus. But that is speculative. It's speculative that Azazel is a goat demon and would resemble a fawn. We don't know. We don't know for sure. Someday we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Now we know in part, we prophesy in part, then we will know fully. But the perfect has not yet come in the way that I believe Paul is talking about when he goes there in the New Testament epistle to the Corinthians. Nevertheless, it's important here that sin is atoned for. It's very important to the life and health of the individual. It's very important to the life and health of a people that their sins are taken outside the camp and that they are able to dwell with God and not die. That's very, very important. And even if you don't understand some of the particulars, join the club. Even scholars who for centuries have studied these things and spent their whole lives searching them out, they don't know. They speculate in part. They know in part. We know what is in the text here. And God knows fully. Now that said, I want to highlight one other thing in this passage before we get into some of the goings-on in the world today. Notice in verse 29, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Why I draw this one out in particular, this verse, is because some get the idea in our day, in America, in 
the 21st century, that it is not moral, it's not ethical, it's not fair, it's not even godly, it's not a good testimony, it's not correct to impose your morality on someone else. Not to do it personally, so don't judge others, people just stop short as soon as they see Jesus saying, do not judge, they say, ah, okay, that's all I need to read. That's all I needed. See, you're not supposed to judge. That's what Jesus said. Ah, but he said, do not judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. So he does tell us to judge, and he also tells us not to judge. But there are two different kinds of judgment being described. The one kind you shouldn't engage in, the other kind you should. And you're commanded to, actually, as a matter of fact. We see that repeated Old Testament and New Testament. That's consistent. God is a righteous judge. He also calls us to judge with right judgment. But when people will draw on the idea of not imposing your morality on others, they sometimes say that's an individual thing. An individual shouldn't impose their morality on others and judge others by their convictions, their religious convictions, their personal convictions. But then also, too, objections will be raised to Christians in particular imposing their morality legislatively on people who are not Christians. As if the point of saying this is right and wrong, this is good and evil, is to make people who are not believers into believers or to make people who are not believers into saved, sanctified, born-again Christians. More to the point. It's not enough just to say you believe in God, even the demons believe, and shudder, we read. But Azazel, if he's a goat demon, believing in God is not the point. It doesn't matter. The point isn't whether you believe that there is one God or that God exists or any of the rest. The point is, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ is Lord and that he is risen and that he was born of a virgin, that he is God of very God, that he is the son of man, that he is what God's word says of him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and its inhabitants. Do you believe all of that? That is to your benefit. That is to your credit. But even if you don't believe, even if you're just passing through, in Leviticus 16, verse 29, this is the statute forever for the native, that is the Israelite, who is one of God's people, or the stranger who sojourns among you. So that is to say somebody just passing through. They're just traveling through. Maybe they're on their way to a different country and your country is in between theirs and the one they're going to. Or maybe they're here to trade or do business or make a deal. They're an emissary. Or maybe they're just a tourist and they're just checking out who are these Israelites and what do they have going on. I'm curious. It doesn't matter. According to God, according to what he tells to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute forever for the native and for the sojourner. So that is to say, to my way of thinking, God is not the source of this standard whereby people say you can't impose your morality on others. It's actually something of a misnomer too, because is it my morality? Is it my standard? Or is judging with right judgment actually appealing to God's standard and saying, see, this is what God has said is good. This is what God has declared evil. I'm going to judge with right judgment when I agree with God's categories of good and evil. When God has made 
known what is right, what is the way that we should walk therein, how then we should live. My agreeing with God is judging with right judgment. And that judging with right judgment will, Paul tells us in Corinthians, find at least on the final judgment day, fulfillment in the saints, not just Christ, but the saints judging the world and angels. And that would include, obviously, fallen angels. We're not going to be just judging the angels who have remained loyal. We're going to be judging the fallen angels. And that's a very curious thing. That's another mysterious thing to go along with Azazel. It's a very curious thing that we are going to judge angels. Paul asks, do you not know we are to judge angels? What does it mean that you test the spirits if you're not discerning whether these spirits come from the Most High God or whether they are part of that contingent that rebelled and was cast out of heaven and which has eternal torment, the lake of fire prepared for them? What is that if not judging with right judgment and not listening to deceiving spirits, not listening to those who want our death and destruction, who go about like Satan, a roaring lion seeking whom they may devour. I won't belabor the point, but I want to just make a note while we're here that the source for this idea that you can't impose morality on people who don't agree with that morality or who don't subscribe to it, it is nonsense. If that were the case, then every law enforcement officer who responds to a call of some domestic violence incident or an attempted burglary or rape or death threats or fill in the blank would have to ask the accused before we go any farther. Let me just ask, do you agree that what you did was wrong? And if it were true that you can't impose morality on people who don't agree with it, the accused would have to say, yes, I agree that I did what was wrong before law enforcement could arrest them, detain them, haul them off to jail, book them, wait for a prosecutor to file charges, send them to court to be judged based on the evidence. But of course, that's not the way that any functional justice system works. That is just not the way that it works. And that is not from God. Romans 13 tells us that the governing authority, which comes from God, is that the minister of God, who a governing authority is, a minister of God, a minister of God, not the minister, not your pastor, not your deacon, not your elders, not your presbyters, but the governing authority, the civil magistrate is a minister of God. That minister of God is here to do good. And he has a mandate from God to do good, to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil, to take the sin of the people in some sense outside the camp. Otherwise, why do we have people arrested and taken off to jail and then possibly put in prison for a long time or possibly put to death if their crimes are severe enough? Why do we do any of that if you cannot impose morality on somebody who says, I don't agree that that's a thing. I don't agree that that is morality, or I don't agree that there is any such thing as morality. That's that's just not the way that it works. Of course, of course, of course. But moving on, let's talk a bit about animals some more. We've been talking about goats here in the previous 
section, reading through Leviticus 16. But let's take a peek at Billings Gazette and a piece written by Brett French, April 19th. Editor's pick is the tagline above the title of this article. The article itself is titled, Hunt, Slaughter, or Harvest Advocates Argue Over Tribal Killing of Yellowstone Bison. And I'll put a link in. This is just a teaser, just a taste of this piece at the Billings Gazette by Brett French. But if you will read it, you'll find that there is outrage from around the world that a hard winter drove a higher than normal number of bison out of Yellowstone Park, where a great many of them were killed. And why were they killed? Well, some people would say they were killed because hunters wanted to hunt them. And why do hunters want to hunt buffalo? To get their meat, to get their hides, to get various other things from them. Horns, for instance. Is this harvesting, right? Well, I surely I surely do hope so. I, I surely hope we're not going back uh, a century or so, a century and a half ago, to just the whole-scale shooting of bison herds and just leaving them without their hides to rot in the sun. I hope that that's not what we're doing. Although I will note that sometimes the Native Americans did a similar thing. Just because Native Americans used every part of the buffalo does not mean that every time Native Americans killed a buffalo, they used every part of the buffalo. That's not what that means. It means there was a practical use for every part of a buffalo. And yeah, sure, across all of the many tribes and individual hunters who harvested bison over the centuries, over the millennia, yeah, I mean, across the broad spectrum, every part was used. But... It's not slaughter in the sense of you just shoot this thing just to kill it, just because you enjoy killing these Yellowstone bison. That's just not what anybody is doing, I don't think. If that were what anybody was doing, then we would all be against it. Every responsible hunter who is also a conservationist, because how do you have anything to hunt next season if you just kill everything that moves this season? The point is not just to kill. The point is to harvest this animal from the wilderness and turn it into delicious food for your family and your friends, possibly to use the hides as well, possibly if it's a particularly impressive specimen to mount its head on the wall as a memento of a great hunt. But see, none of these things are easily understood by modern people who live in cities, who live on the coasts, in particular, and are out of touch with the images that come to them via the internet. Or people who live in other countries, perhaps even, who are bought into the environmentalist movement. What they think is that the American West should stay untouched by human hands, and that's their ideal of man living with nature, is for man to not have any environmental impact whatsoever. This is something that Alex Epstein gets into in the moral case for fossil fuels. When you really drill down to the objection to fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas being extracted and used to fuel 
the development of nations and economies. When you really drill down, the problem that the most honest environmentalists have with fossil fuels is that it has an environmental impact because they think that a state of nature is the ideal. And this is not compatible. This idea is not compatible with biblical Christianity. But I repeat myself, to be biblical is to be a Christian. And to be a Christian is to be biblical. But hunt, slaughter, or harvest, really, it's all three. If we're talking about how most hunters hunt, you hunt the thing. And so that's your pursuit. You're tracking this animal and you're figuring out where is it. And then you're going to stalk it and hopefully be downwind or crosswind at best, not making too much noise. You're going to get in range with the proper caliber of firearm or possibly a bow. And then you're going to take aim and fire, preferably at a vital organ that kills the animal quickly. And then you're going to slaughter and harvest the animal. You gut it and then you take it either to a butcher who is going to process it for you, or you take it home and you hang it from something that is strong enough to support the weight. Usually you let it cure for a couple of days before proceeding to process the quarters into the proper cuts. But it's a curious piece to see in the Billings Gazette alongside another one by Brett French, actually. So this one, two days later, titled Ancient Hunters Used High Alpine Driveline Similar Artifacts Concentrated in Paradise Valley. They sprout like uneven whiskers growing on a teenage boy's face, a jumble of irregular lines concentrated in one place with long isolated strands spread out nearby, traced across the landscape of the Paradise Valley and divided by the Yellowstone River. The marks record prehistoric drivelines made of stone that Native American hunters used to funnel bison and other migratory animals to their death. As a whole, they represent one of the largest driveline complexes in North America and highlight an ancient wildlife migration corridor between what is now Yellowstone National Park and surrounding lowlands used as winter range. And what this really has to do with is building these stone walls really to act like funnels. I mean, think of when you're adding oil to your vehicle. If you change the oil on your car or your truck, you add oil and you don't just pour it straight into the opening when you pop the cap. You put a funnel there so that you don't get spillage. You don't get oil all over the engine compartment. Well, that's essentially scaled up for animals instead of oil. That's what ancient Native Americans were doing. Archaeologists believe when they find these they say that's what they were doing. And also, too, I can speak as somebody who has hunted elk and deer out west and talked with landowners and hiked their properties looking for game. I have seen buffalo jumps and I've talked with property owners who will describe finding piles of bison bones at the bottom of these buffalo jumps. And so what was that, right? What was that except that tribes, hunting parties from tribes would spook and scare bison 
over cliffs. And then they would fall, the height and the fall would, if not kill them, at least cripple them, break their legs, not give them a quick death by any means, but break their legs to where they wouldn't be able to escape. And then down below, you'd have more hunters waiting with spears or bows and arrows to dispatch these crippled animals, possibly a good number of crippled animals before doing exactly what I just described, gutting them, quartering them, hauling them back, letting them cure for a while before cutting them into edible, cookable, yes, but edible chunks. And so my point in bringing this up is you have this idea of the noble savage that was romanticized over the last 50 years or so, particularly since the 1960s and 1970s, there was the hippie movement. And so there was some historical revisionism trying to present the Native Americans who were here before the white man, before European civilization, before Christian civilization, really more to the point. Trying to characterize them, trying to characterize them as at peace with nature. And by this, we should understand Peace with nature means exactly what Alex Epstein describes in The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Having no Im- impact on the environment, no, no environmental impact, that's peace with nature if you don't affect the landscape. But then that's just not how they lived. Charles C. Mann's 1491 and 1493 make that very clear. The historical revisionism, both when it was aimed at erasing the developments contributions, achievements of Native American, pre-Columbian Native American peoples to justify having taken the land and developed it, colonized it, and also the pendulum swinging the opposite direction to say these peoples were so much morally superior to us because they didn't impact their landscape. Both alike are nonsense. Both alike are nonsense. And we see that in the archaeological record. We see that in the historical record. We see it even today. But speaking of Native Americans, I happened to hover over the bottom left weather button on my taskbar on my computer and up popped the curated Microsoft news articles from around the web, including one from just yesterday, written by USA Today, Peter Pan and Wendy, How Disney's 2023 Live-Action Remake Fixes Problematic Animated Original. Story by Patrick Ryan, published last night, actually, 7.07 p.m. I'll include a link to the article in the description for this podcast episode. But one thing in particular that has a tie-in with the two pieces from the Billings Gazette is that a live-action Tiger Lily is a corrective to the, quote, problematic original, end quote. Briefly, here's a quote from Lowry. We wrote a version of Tiger Lily that I felt was not only integral to the story, but was sort of a corrective to the original animated version, which is, of course, incredibly problematic. But I'm a white dude writing this part, and I wanted to hand it over to Alyssa and let her invest the character with all the things that were important to her in terms of representing a culture, end quote. So, Alyssa, 
Wapanatak plays the warrior princess. And she is descended from Cree stock. And she, therefore, is able to tell us what the proper view of a Native American woman is. That's how we should understand this nod from the director. And to be clear, I like history. I just told you about Charles C. Mann dealing with the historical revisionism of at least two different types that actually obstructed rather than clarified what happened with Native Americans prior to the arrival of Columbus in 1492. But revisionism can take on lots of forms. If Europeans are able to revise their own history, well, then so also are Native Americans, so also are African Americans, so also are Asian Americans, so also are all peoples of all countries in the world. And so how do we know that this revision of the image of Native Americans is more faithful? I'll just ask the person who comes from that people group, but is the same, <laughs> here's the question, is the same luxury afforded to Europeans? That's the big question. If Native Americans are really the only ones who can speak to an authentic representation of their own people, is that also true of European Americans? If indigenous peoples have to be the final authority on what their legacy is and how they're remembered and how they're characterized, is that also true of people whose ancestors came from Europe, like myself, for instance, in the majority of cases? I do know that there are some Native Americans on my mother's father's mother's side, the Blaylocks, were some of the first people who came to settle the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But I'll play for you just a, a quick clip of this problematic song, and then we'll talk briefly about it. And then I've got some other pressing things that I want to get to as well. But here is Disney's 1953 song, What Makes the Red Man Red? Take a listen, and then we'll talk through it. Teach him, pale-faced brother, all about Red Man. Good. This should be most enlightening. Uh, what makes the red man red? When did he first say, us? Uh, say, ugh? Why does he ask you how? Why does he ask you how? Why does he ask you how? What's the engine didn't know all the things that he know now. But the engine, he sure learned a lot. And it's all from asking how. Let's go back a million years 
to the very first Indian prince. He kissed some maid and start to blush, and we've all been blushing since. <laughs> Okay. All right. <clears throat> there it was. <clears throat> Let me take a sip of my coffee here. <laughs> hmm. Okay. So this obviously was not an attempt at giving you the true history of Native Americans. Might I point out that this was a cartoon made 80 years ago that I don't remember growing up watching. I watched this cartoon growing up. It's one of the ones that I enjoyed my childhood with, one of the Disney classics. I don't remember ever thinking to myself, ah, okay, that, that is how the red man became the red man. That is what makes the red man red is blushing when a beautiful young woman gives him a kiss. You know, and and what you'll remember too, if you watched this and you watch the movie again from 1953, what you'll notice is that you've got Tiger Lily flirting with Peter Pan, and you've got Wendy very incensed, just very indignant. She storms off. She was getting the firewood like she was directed to, and then she sees Tiger Lily and Peter Pan flirting. And Peter Pan is blushing, right? He is just absolutely blushing over the kiss from Tiger Lily, who is cute as a button. And Wendy is not going to stick around for that. She is going home. You can't treat me this way because obviously she has something of an affinity for Peter Pan. And what does he think he's doing chumming it up with Tiger Lily? But again, can I just emphasize it was a cartoon. It wasn't supposed to be taken as <laughs> the final word on Native American history or history at all, for that matter. The whole thing is made up. But now we have to revise even our childhood stories. Not that I'm going to die on the hill of Peter Pan, but I think that I think it's silly. I think it's not so good that we would take this thing too seriously and get all bent out of shape about it. But moving on, moving on, lest we do die on that hill. Some other things that are very problematic, which I hope in coming decades, future generations will look back on as just a sad chapter in our history, but a chapter that closed and we turned away from these things. A transgender teacher was removed from her employment after being allowed to remain on campus for several weeks, after 
allegedly making disturbing comments about shooting students and having bad thoughts. This happened at a Florida middle school. Lorenz Duchamps reports for the Epoch Times. This teacher was allowed to stay on campus for several weeks after making comments about shooting students. And where is the equal application of justice and the laws? It was delayed in coming, but you would say, well, the teacher got fired, as should have happened. And what's the big deal? It took several weeks. And the slow reaction, the needing for it to take several weeks would not have a corresponding equivalent if this had been a comment from, let's say, a Christian teacher, so-called a professing Christian teacher about shooting transgendered students or transgendered teachers. There would be no delay at all. They would be immediately terminated and roundly condemned. And you would hear, this is how Christians are in America. This is who Americans are. Not just do we have racism in our DNA, like Barack Obama said in a very cruel and unfair and harmful way during his time as president, but because this was a transgendered teacher and because they are being put to the fore as a political lever by the left, it took a minute. It took a minute. Some other business to do with transgenderism. Going back to the Billings Gazette briefly, I get the digital version of their paper delivered to my inbox. I am subscribed because I am from Montana. The Billings Gazette is arguably the paper of record in the state of Montana. Their Saturday, April 29th issue has on the front page, GOP distorts insurrection. Protests at state capitals have been loud, but not violent. And here is a picture of Congressman Zoe Zephyr, Democrat from Missoula, alone on the House floor, the caption reads, standing in protest as demonstrators are arrested in the gallery on Monday in the Montana State Capitol. When this is Republicans at our nation's capital, it is the worst thing to happen since Pearl Harbor and 9-11. When it is Democrats in the Montana State Capitol, then this is democracy at work. Do you see how that works? Also, oh, by the way, in the state of Montana and in other states in the West, there's a definite push to normalize transgenderism and homosexuality. And you just watch. Pedophilia is creeping up in the normalization. It is more and more being floated as the next thing that we need to affirm in the interest of inclusivity, in the interest of diversity and equity. We need to normalize pedophilia as well. That's where it goes next. And that's where it's already at. Some of us are slow in the uptake, but it's already here. It's already being promoted. I know Elon Musk just recently said it will not be tolerated. There will be zero tolerance on Twitter for, let's say, a pedophilia pride flag. The guy who came up with a pedophilia pride flag was, I believe, either suspended or had his account terminated on Twitter. Because 
There's going to be a zero tolerance policy with regards to trying to sexualize children in that way. But there's still this push to debate and not even to debate, right? It's every conversation that the left wants to have in this country about every ism that they make their platform a champion of. They want to have a discussion about transgenderism in this country. And yet, if conservatives, if Christians say, absolutely not, this this is a non-starter. This is evil. What you're doing to children in cultivating this sense that they are a sexual minority, that they are gay or bi or trans, absolutely not. That's evil. Well, then the conversation suddenly is over. What they really want to have a discussion about is how quickly do we trans the kids? How many of the kids will we trans? How will we trans the kids? Those are the questions that they want to discuss, but they don't want to discuss really, is this evil? Because it is evil. And then that would be the end of it if they allowed the conversation to go there. So they clearly can't. Speaking of schools, speaking of children, CNN contributor blasts teachers union boss, Randy Weingarten, over COVID school closures. I hear no remorse, Joseph McKinnon over at The Blaze reports. And what we have here is a liar who is lying and someone bravely calling her out on the very public lies, which are easily verified. It is a matter of public record. This was not secretive. This wasn't like, oh, we don't know, right? He said this, she said that. Who knows? No, no. This is very verifiable. I'll go ahead and play for you another clip here, just the audio, obviously, of Scott Jennings calling out Randy Weingarten on CNN. Here's cut two. Take a listen. Yeah, um, we don't know each other, but speaking on behalf of millions of American parents, I have four at home. I had to teach them at home. My wife had to teach them at home. I am stunned at what you have said this week about your claiming to have wanted to reopen schools. I think most you'll find that most parents believe you were the tip of the spear of school closures. There are numerous statements you made over the summer of 20, scaring people to death about the possibility of opening schools. And I hear no remorse whatsoever about the generational damage that's been done to these kids. I have two kids with learning differences. Do you know how hard it is for them to learn at home and not in a classroom that was designed for them? And for you to sit in front of Congress and the American people and say, oh, I I wanted to open them the whole time. I, I am shocked. I'm stunned. I'm stunned. And there are millions of parents who feel the exact same way. Okay. So I will disagree with Scott Jennings on the suitability of public school classrooms. I'll disagree about that. And this is why we homeschool. But he's right to point out that Randy Weingarten, this teachers union boss, was absolutely saying, we've got to close the schools. We've got to keep them closed. And this was another lever for pushing social justice, for pushing DEI, for trying to get raises in the compensation for public school teachers. This was a bargaining chip. We're going to keep the schools closed until we get CRT and DEI and wokeness. Until 
we get everything we're demanding that has nothing whatsoever to do with COVID. And oh, by the way, when you do come back, you're going to have to have the vaccine and you're going to have to wear masks and you're going to have to social distance. And then these kids have all kinds of not just learning problems from an academic standpoint, but they have learning problems with regards to discipline, with regards to manners, with regards to self-control, with regards to how to have relationships. They've been developing these problems for decades prior, but this was like pouring an accelerant on a fire. This was like pouring gasoline on a fire when COVID hit and the left with one voice decided to exploit the crisis, which increasingly is proven to have originated in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where, go figure, Democrats and leftists in our own bureaucracy were funding gain-of-function research that led to COVID. And I believe very firmly that the Chinese Communist Party colluded with Democrats here in the U.S. to unleash COVID on the world to promote all of the isms that the left loves and wants to see implemented at scale globally. And now you have some figures like Randy Weingarten who want to, again with the historical revisionism, rewrite the chronicles of the last several years to make themselves into the heroes. And it can't be born. American parents, whether we sent our kids to public school or we homeschooled them, we know better. And this is not okay. And oh, by the way, why are public school teachers and administrators and teachers unions, why are they heroic? And the parents who are saying, you can't do this to my children, this is not okay. Why are the parents the ones who have the burden of proof as the left sees it? to establish their standing or their legitimacy? Why are the parents not the default authorities in this case, telling the teachers this is what is permissible and this is not permissible, this other thing that you're trying to push or advocate for or promote, or these things that you are ignoring entirely, you're neglecting. This is your job and you're not doing it because you're promoting social justice, you're promoting CRT, you're promoting... You're, you're promoting LGBTQ plus inclusivity. And, and now, too, one in four American youth are identifying as either gay or bi or trans. And we're, we're just supposed to believe that that is how it's always been and that one quarter of American kids or kids in general have always been gay, bi, trans, non-binary, two-spirit. We're just supposed to believe that this is the way it's always been, but they were in hiding, right? They were in hiding. No, 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 that's not correct. Better that a millstone would be tied around a man's neck and he would be cast into the depths of the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones who believe in Jesus to stumble, to disbelieve, to sin. And yet that's exactly what the Democrat Party has built its platform on is causing little ones to stumble, to either lose faith in Christ or to not ever develop that faith in the first place. Certainly not to have any fear of God, certainly not to obey God, to trust in God. And this is why we homeschool. But moving on, 
Let's talk a bit about Ron DeSantis and Florida. Colin Leinbarger over at Gateway Pundit published a piece April 16th, which I talked about a little bit, but I'll just refresh your memory in case you didn't catch that episode or you have forgotten. A key GOP donor says plans to help finance DeSantis likely White House campaign are on hold. The consensus here is that some big donors, big Republican donors, big supposedly conservative, but they're not conservative. They just give money to Republicans. That doesn't make them conservatives. Uh, Some big donors have said they're a little bit concerned about Ron DeSantis banning books, supposedly going after Disney and their special self-governing arrangement, longstanding. And quite frankly, I think that we need to ignore those big donors. They need to conform to the rank-and-file conservatives in this country, the true conservatives in this country. And if they're not willing to do that, well, then they're not actually conservatives. Just because they're giving money to Republicans, that doesn't mean that they're conservatives and we shouldn't pay them any heed whatsoever. If they're going to only put forward people who are championing all the things that the left does just a little slower, well, then we can't afford that. We can't afford it. They maybe can afford that because worst case scenario, they just transfer their funds to a foreign bank account and leave the country, but we can't afford it. This is our country before it's their country when they are global citizens themselves and find more in common with the Davos crowd than they do Little old you and me in Greeley, Colorado, for instance. For example, I hope Ron DeSantis does run for president. And a positive sign in that direction is that the Florida legislature has just cleared the way for DeSantis to run for president without resigning as governor first. Bill Pan over at the Epoch Times just published this yesterday. Florida's Republican-led legislature approved a bill clarifying that Governor Ron DeSantis may run for president in 2024 while keeping his current position. In a party-line vote of 76 to 34 on Friday, the Florida House approved an amended version of SB 7050, which includes a provision that explicitly exempts anyone running for president or vice president from the existing resign-to-run requirements. The bill has already passed Florida Senate by a vote of 28 to 12 and now heads to the governor's desk for his signature. I am for this. I am very for this, decidedly for it. It is a good sign. It is what we need. And if Trump is the front runner, if he ends up getting the Republican nomination, well, then I will probably vote for him unless he takes some position that I just absolutely can't, I absolutely can't abide by. But then again, he may have already where he is throwing shindigs, where he celebrates how his administration helped to advance LGBTQ plus movement goals. Is he actually a conservative? Is he actually any better than the Democrats? Really, truly? I I'm not going to put my eggs in that basket. He needs to pick a side and not play both sides like he is on that particular issue. And also, too, comments he made regarding 
the results of the midterms when he blamed conservatives and Republicans in America who are a no-go on Republican candidates if they are not staunchly, not just pro-life, but for the abolition of abortion. He blamed single-issue Republicans and conservatives for not showing up to support candidates who were wishy-washy on the question of abortion. And that is exactly backwards. No, no, no. It is incumbent on Republicans to put forward candidates who are absolutely committed to the abolition of abortion. And if the Republican Party won't do that, well, then the Republican Party deserves to not exist anymore. The Republican Party deserves to not exist if it is not committed to its own platform. If it's putting forward candidates who are for gun control and higher taxes and bigger government and the promotion of LGBTQ plus initiatives and normalizing abortion in any case whatsoever, well then, who needs Democrats with Republicans like that? But lest we lose too much energy on that question, I want to move on back to the Billings Gazette just briefly. And another piece by Brett French, this one titled Photographer Documents Italy's Vanishing Cowboys, the Buttery Exhibit on Display in Cody. This is Cody, Wyoming, for those unfamiliar with the region. Brett French's article reads in the first couple of paragraphs here, there are vaqueros and guachos, the Mexican and Argentinian versions of America's cowboys, but have you ever heard of the Bateri, Italy's horse-mounted cattle herders? Quote, very few people know about the Bateri, said Guy de Gallard, a Buffalo, Wyoming-based photographer and writer. Quote, they don't think of Italy as a country that has cowboys, end quote. It was de Gallard who connected California journalist-turned-photographer Gabriel Saveri to Italy's Bateri. De Gallard wrote and photographed a story on them in 2006 for Cowboys and Indians magazine. He unknowingly launched a passion project for Saveri. From that introduction 10 years ago, Saveri spent roughly eight years producing a photographic exhibit, Italy's legendary Cowboys of the Merema, now showing in the John Bunker Sands Photography Gallery at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. The photographs will be on display in the Cody, Wyoming Gallery through August 6th. Now, just a couple of just just brief touch points, just some brief touch points. And I'm not all upset about this. I'm not going to lose any sleep about it. But this does a pretty decent job of highlighting what to me is the donor class priority for Republicans, even in the West, maybe especially sometimes in the West. There is more interest in praising international cowboys because it's exotic, right? It's interesting. It's exotic. Let's highlight the cowboys of Italy and how they're a vanishing breed. All the while, how are cowboys here in America portrayed? How are cowboys here in America related to? We see it in Montana state capital with this transgendered congressman from Missoula. He is the hero as the Billings Gazette presents him, as the left sees it. And the cowboys, well, they have got to go. Hunting buffalo, it doesn't matter if prehistoric Native Americans 
literally drove herds of bison off of cliffs so that they would break their legs and be helpless while they were stabbed to death and butchered in mass for the choicest cuts. Not all the meat, I'm sure, but the choicest cuts. Never mind that that was happening. We're going to use it as a argument in favor of not hunting wolves, not hunting bison, that the international community is outraged that we're still hunting bison. We are hunting wolves if they leave Yellowstone Park and start going after ranchers, livestock, and pets, and even persons. The Billings Gazette cares more about Italian cowboys than they do American cowboys because they like the fashion. They like how sharply dressed the Italian cowboys are. It's exotic, right? It's fashionable. But that's all it is to these people, is it's fashion. This isn't the way of life to them. It's a fetish. And it's for these reasons, exactly these reasons, that conservatives in this country need to stop taking the donor class quite so seriously. They take a trip to Italy last summer, and then they come back, and they want to go to this art gallery exhibit about Italy's cowboys. All the while, their neighbors, who are local cowboys— they could not hardly hold in lower regard. Put a cowboy on TV and maybe we'll go see it as long as Tiger Lily is played by a Native American woman and we dispel everything that the left says to purge. Don't come in here telling me you're concerned about a dying breed where cowboys are concerned. If you really were you wouldn't be making it so impossible for rural, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth Westerners who are actually conservatives to have representation. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't mock them. You wouldn't vilify them. You wouldn't sideline them. You wouldn't marginalize them the way that you do. You wouldn't run claiming to represent their interests. And then when your guy gets in or when you get into office, you're pushing all of the things that demoralize them. You wouldn't do that, but that's exactly what you do. And so I think this is indicative. It's not that I have any ill will towards Italy's cowboys, but we have our own cowboys. Why do we need Italy's cowboys in Cody, Wyoming, of all places, in the Billings Gazette, of all places? Why do we need Italy's cowboys? We have American cowboys. I want to hear more about the American cowboys and what is making it harder for them to ranch to farm, to pass their family's legacy on to the next generation. That's what I want to hear more about because I am from Eastern Montana, the son and grandson and great-grandson and great-great-grandson of farmers. That's what I want to hear about. And that's what I don't hear the Billings Gazette talking about. But moving on, another piece by Cullen Linebarker at the Gateway Pundit. Blew my mind. Elon Musk reveals disturbing new details regarding government access to Twitter in, and this is funny, upcoming interview with Tucker Carlson. You can tell this is a little bit dated. April 16th, this interview was set to air the following Monday night. April 16th, if you'll recall, was a Sunday. And so the next day, being the 17th, is when this interview would have aired. But I'm going to go ahead and play the clip. Here's cut three 
of the back and forth between Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson. Maybe this is one of the reasons why Tucker Carlson was being boycotted by advertisers and was ultimately not fired, I suppose, technically. And we'll get into that here in just a minute. But why Tucker Carlson is no longer on the air at Fox News. Here's cut three. Take a listen. The degree to which uh, various government agencies had effectively had full access to everything that was going on on Twitter uh, blew my mind. Um, I was not aware of that. Would that include people's DMs? Uh, Yes. Okay. This concerns us all. This is the kind of reporting that true journalists should be doing. Actual news networks and newspapers should be bringing to us. This is exactly the kind of interview, the kind of reporting that the corporate media has a vested interest in not bringing to you, particularly if you go down this road and it leads to some major overhauls of the U.S. government and big tech and the way that we interact with both. The U.S. government, not the conservatives in the U.S. government, but the U.S. government, the deep state, as some call it, the bureaucratic state, as others call it, intelligence agencies, but not just. Unelected bureaucrats and staffers for Democrats were contacting Twitter on a regular basis to say, here's a list of people to suppress. Here's a list of people to suspend. Here's a list of people to ban from your platform because we don't like what they're saying. And oh, by the way, how do you feel about the government with anybody, whether they agree with your politics or not, reading your private messages and deciding whether you get to talk tomorrow or not to people who are friends and family and customers and clients and readers and listeners and the general public? How do you feel about unelected bureaucrats, regardless of their political affiliation, regardless whether you agree with their politics, looking through your mail, so to speak, and deciding whether your voice is valid, whether your contribution matters. This is exactly where the people who were so concerned about irregularities in the 2020 election had every right to be concerned and to raise those objections. Because a government that will do this with your private correspondence and your public posts on Twitter for the frivolous reasons and the very partisan reasons we have learned were at work in play behind the scenes at Twitter, that same government will absolutely go the next step and manipulate the elections and what the safeguards are, what the rules are, what we count, when, how, where, who counts it, who watches who counts it, how that's reported, when that's reported, what gets certified. A bureaucratic state that will intervene with your free speech will absolutely, for all the same reasons, intervene in elections when they can tell themselves and one another, this is for national security or this is for the greater good. The same mindset is common to both. And it's entirely plausible when somebody says, I think there was massive fraud. I think it was a stolen election. I think there's been election interference from the bureaucratic state for at least several election cycles. And when the Democrats reply with, you're undermining confidence in our democracy, I say, no, you did that. 
you undermined confidence in our democracy by fiddling the knobs and the buttons and the switches behind the scenes via the corporate media and social media. You did that. My saying to stop is not my undermining confidence in our elections or in our democracy, so-called. It's my trying to restore confidence in the same and the integrity of the same. But this is happening even with independent corporate media. I suppose you could call the Daily Wire increasingly. They are a corporation and they are media and they are a big name in news media. Now, I love the Daily Wire, but even with regards to an independent conservative corporate media, Zach Jewell reports April 19th, Daily Wire co-CEO reveals secret cancel blitz against Matt Walsh, Brett Cooper, Michael Knowles. Jeremy Boring shot back at Big Tech and the left Wednesday, revealing an onslaught of cancellation campaigns targeting Daily Wire hosts, Matt Walsh, Brett Cooper, and Michael Knowles. Boring called out tech giants YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok for capricious fact checks, demonetizations, and bans against the Daily Wire hosts. He also revealed that software companies HubSpot and JW Player have abruptly canceled service with his company from their platforms as event management site Eventbrite did previously. Boring's threat also comes after Walsh's Twitter and email accounts were hacked Tuesday night. Quote, you may be aware that Matt Walsh had his Twitter account hacked last night. What you may not know is that the attack went well beyond Twitter. The hackers have managed to gain access to, well, everything, including 20 years of Matt's emails. And here's the point. Here's why this matters. If your info is not safe from people who are outside the government, and let's just say all the hacking was done by people outside the government who are just activists, hacktivists who don't like the Daily Wire, what do you think their motivation is? Do you think they're hacking in because they want to find some ways to help the Daily Wire? Or are they hacking in because they're looking for anything they can use to blackmail or extort, but ultimately silence and shut down these personalities at the Daily Wire? When you have a campaign or several campaigns to boycott and to get companies to boycott advertising with the Daily Wire, I mean, there's no way that you can interpret that as beneficial, but we all know the hacking is malicious because what is going to be done with this private information is going to be malicious. Now, let's take everything we intuitively recognize about people outside of government reading Matt Walsh's 20 years of emails, how we intuitively understand that bad actors can misuse information to control or to destroy anyone they don't like or they disagree with, apply all of that intuition to unelected bureaucrats and intelligence agencies and political administrations on the left. And tell me what aspect of human nature is so qualitatively different that we would assume the best is going to be done, only the best, when your emails are being read, your direct messages are being read by unelected bureaucrats, FBI agents, IRS agents, for instance. What changes in human nature? Or what? Do we not suppose that our bureaucratic state can be filled with activists? Who do you think Obama was appointing to these agencies? Who do you think Biden has been appointing to these agencies? Nonpartisans? 
neutral moderates, indifferent observers who have only the best of intentions ever and never abuse their authority, never overreach their boundaries? Of course not. Of course not. But see, here's the deal. Going back to Leviticus 16, and then I'm going to wrap this episode in a bow and call it good. Leviticus 16, you have one rule for the native Israelite and for the sojourner who is traveling through. You have one rule regarding the Day of Atonement. It doesn't matter if you're an Israelite. It doesn't matter if you agree with the Day of Atonement. If you don't agree with it, well, then just don't come here. But you have the imposition of a morality on foreigners and natives alike because this is what God has commanded. And somebody will say, well, but that's not fair. Why do Christians always have to do this? And I say, you think it's only Christians who are imposing their definitions of their categories of good and evil on non-Christians? The left is absolutely imposing their notion of morality on not just people who don't agree in the present, retroactively, they go back to 1953 and a Disney movie of all things, nothing is safe, nothing is sacred, nothing is too frivolous or silly. They go back in time, 80 years, and want to retroactively impose their morality on Peter Pan and Tiger Lily. And so my point here is, it's not a question of whether morality will be imposed on people who may not agree. I would hope that my example of law enforcement would have already made that clear. But the point is not whether or not morality will be imposed on people who agree with it and disagree with it alike, but whose morality and will that morality actually be judging with right judgment or will it be judging by appearances? There's really only one way to know, and that is to go back to God's word, to go back to God and seek his face, repent, turn from our sins, look to his word, look to the atonement of Christ on our behalf, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved holistically. You will have eternal life. Also, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus, that by testing, you will be able to know what the will of God is and to do the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in from before the foundation of the world. If we will ask God for wisdom, believing and not doubting, he will give it to us. And what a relief that is. Really, when we look at all of the dysfunction, all of the disorder, all of the scheming and the snakes being snakes, serpents being serpents, and we realize we're called to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And how do we do both? How can we become wise? First off, by fearing God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do we be harmless as doves? Look to Christ. Not that Christ is safe per se. When he comes again, he will be riding a war horse. He came the first time in humility, born of a virgin, wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger. When he comes again, he will be coming to rule and to reign and to judge. So kiss the son now on the way, lest he become angry and we perish in his wrath.
But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.